Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hey there, and welcome back to episode 139. And if you're new, thanks for joining. Before we start this assembly, the principal has some announcements. Is this thing on? Had to do that because I have a bit of a long list for you today. First of all, my friends at CG Life have asked me to moderate their podcast on sales enablement. It's called Timing is Everything. So look for that wherever you get your podcasts. I ask the questions and CG Life experts and smart marketing and salespeople like yourselves discuss how they leverage buyer intent. Second, I have a couple of events coming up. On March 3rd, SAMPS is hosting a webinar on alternative media. I'll be a panel member for that one. And then this Thursday, February 25th, I'm appearing at the virtual Reimagined Biopharma Summit where I'm giving a presentation on podcasting for brands, what you need to know. I'll put links for both of those in the show notes. And finally, I'll just mention Clubhouse. I've got some things planned, but I think it would be an easy alternative to my curated cocktail Zooms to bring together folks in my network to meet with each other in small groups. If you're interested in that idea, send an email to chris at life science marketing radio.com that's it thanks for hanging in there now let's jump into my interview with darren alvarez from researchgate all right my guest today is darren alvarez he is the general manager for marketing solutions at researchgate and helping scientists connect and collaborate darren welcome to life science marketing radio thanks chris We're going to talk today about a survey that you recently did to your members regarding marketing. Uh First of all, some people, if they're not familiar with ResearchGate, tell them who your members are and what they use it for. We started ResearchGate in 2008 to really address the problems that we saw in the way science was created and shared. So our mission is to connect the world of science and make research open to all. We host a community of nearly 20 million researchers across the world from diverse fields who use ResearchGate to connect, collaborate, and share their work. And this totals around 3 3 billion plus impressions per year. So we really offer researchers the ability to connect to one another and the research resources that they need to do their work, with most of our registered members actually coming from verified institutions, universities, and companies. We're really trying to make science faster, fairer, and and easier to discover and access. So the ResearchGate vision includes also enabling life science brands to better support a scientist's research. This is why we built and continue to invest in our marketing solutions. Marketing and advertising on the ResearchGate platform really helps businesses connect with researchers, discovering new and existing research content to advance their work. We have options uh, for businesses to build their brand, to drive website traffic, and to generate high quality leads in science. Nice. So you, as I mentioned, you recently did a survey of those members. What was the purpose of that survey? 
That's right, Chris. Yeah, we did. It's actually, it all started in the early days of the pandemic, where we learned uh, from a lot of our life science customers that there was a great deal of uncertainty about the right time and the way to reach scientists in this new norm. We really felt like it was our responsibility to, to check in with the research community and better understand their needs and concerns at the time. So these results were actually incredibly well received by our customers, and it really helped them to adapt their strategies with the researcher in mind. We captured survey response data from 1400 life scientists, all registered members of ResearchGate, in order to learn more about the lab group actors that influence lab equipment purchase decisions, the channels, tactics that most impact lab equipment purchasing behavior, and also to understand more about how the pandemic had affected life scientists' research activity, and also what implications there are for lab equipment companies who are our customers. So based upon this data, we've created a three-part commercial insight series that we've shared with all of our ResearchGate marketing solutions customers so that they can really develop stronger marketing and advertising strategies, deploying a smarter mix with the right kind of content and most effectively trying to, to connect with their target audience in science and research. Yes. How has COVID affected usage on your site? What did you see at the start of the pandemic? Yeah, it's been an interesting moment, I think, for a lot of digital platforms generally. Because of social restrictions, the loss of more traditional access to information, resources and services has forced both consumers and businesses to quickly adapt. On ResearchGate, for instance, researchers were flocking to our platform to discover research and connect with their scientific peers online, given that their former ways of working had been restricted. We've actually seen a 3x increase in platform signups compared to the previous year. So from 1 million annual signups before the pandemic to 3 million post-COVID. In addition to the increased signups, we've seen a surge in usage as calculated by our scientific research page impressions. Whereas we previously had around 3 billion annual scientific research page impressions, now ResearchGate um, is utilized at a rate of 3.8 billion annual scientific research page impressions, which is really a huge number. I think on the side of engagement with high value educational content produced by marketers, we also noticed that there was a dramatic increase in researchers interacting with this content via ads. An interesting one specifically that had a marked uptick um, for us was scientific video content, such as webinars. And this was really because physical events had been significantly impacted. This also really prompted us to invest in a native events offering that allows brands to capture registrations for their scientific events. The ResearchGate platform post-pandemic more specifically, though, also saw boosts in research publication reads, so 30, 35% up from the previous value. We also saw a 37% increase in questions and answers on the platform and a 24% increase in researchers following other researcher accounts. So really here our hypothesis was that this was due to an increase in the amount of time that was spent doing literature reviews and planning experiments. Yeah, do you think do you think this is sustainable or do you think if things get back to normal that 
it will tail off. Certainly people, scientists were sitting in, not sitting in their labs, sitting wherever they were sitting and not able to, to go to work. So they're doing those literature reviews and fortunately, yeah, connecting with other scientists who they might not have discovered otherwise. But do you, what do you see the future to be? Yeah, that's a really good question, Chris. And I think to think about that, we really have to hope that the value that the scientists get from these increased interactions and the research engagement continues to be something that they see having an impact even post-pandemic. And I think what I mean by that is if the scientist is now engaging with content that marketers are sharing, they're more likely to, to come back and continue to engage with that content if it's highly valuable and if they see that it does have increase and improve their scientific productivity. So our hope is actually that when scientists return to the lab, of course, they're now spending more time doing experiments, but that they do see that it was more efficient, more effective for them to leverage content, for instance, available on our platform and also shared by marketers, the, the more educational content to, to help them become more efficient. That sort of point has come up a few times on this podcast and in other media sources I listen to around this acceleration of doing things in a way that probably was coming to us at some point. Mm -hmm. And now people have done it and realized, hey, that's not so bad. In yeah. fact, that might actually be better than the way I was doing it before. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We, we definitely see that trend a lot in online shopping, for example. And our hypothesis is that a lot of the, the features, the functionality that, that we provide, which help researchers connect, is something that they'll realize is a better, more effective way of, of working and collaborating. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of the insights regarding purchasing behavior. Some of these are new to me. Some of them were in what I've seen consistently over the years, surveys about where people like to get their information, but what are the top influences for scientists making their purchasing decisions? That's right, Chris. So we were actually quite intrigued by some of the purchasing behavior insights from our surveyors. So for instance, for marketers looking to influence lab equipment purchase, there are actually three top criteria in addition to price that a buyer considers. And this includes the performance of the item, the manufacturer's reputation and the recommendation of one of their scientific peers. So really here, a takeaway from this is that life science marketers will benefit from being active in these channels that allow them to build trust with their target audience, as this is, a, is quite critical in the researcher's decision making. This goes beyond the pure product marketing or demand marketing. And it turns out there's an incredible opportunity for thought leadership via valuable educational content, which really fosters more trust amongst the audience that is really trained in rigorous critical thinking and evidence-based research. Your survey shows that brand choice occurs early in the funnel. That makes sense because that's what the early part of the funnel is for. Mm -hmm. Yet the net promoter scores are negative at the awareness stage. So a couple of things. One, why is that? And two, I didn't know there was such a thing as a net promoter score by stage of the funnel. So tell us about that data. That's actually a great question and a good observation, Chris. So the NPS data was actually data that we included from an external source to really help us reinforce um, that insight that 
brand choice does occur earlier in the funnel. So our survey results actually showed that researchers with educational scientific content were actually most, this was the content, educational scientific content was the content that really most influenced a purchasing decision. And furthermore, that this content was actually accessed weeks or even months ahead of purchase. So early funnel stage. So we wanted to see how this research fit in with other similar studies. And this is really where we learned from a CEB study that 50% of consumer consumers' brand choice actually occurs during the awareness and knowledge stage. So this is the initial stage one consideration phase. We were actually really interested with this. And then we wanted to know how are brands in the life science space actually faring with this early marketing um, funnel activity. So actually we found a study from bioinformatics that really surprised us. And this is really where the net net promoter score, the scores um, came out where we found that not all life scientists were actually satisfied with the early marketing from life science companies. So with scores actually being lowest and actually even negative in the early stage of the buying journey, according to the study, they actually evaluated how each supplier scores um, at each purchasing point using net promoter score uh, methodology. So it's a score that was similar to the net uh, promoter score. And so I think for us, what's clear is that marketing and advertising strategies can and really should adapt to reflect this digital user behavior and use these insights to to optimize results. I think it's clear that positioning your brand as as a thought leader in service of the researcher's needs will help build trust and and affinity and something that will like positively influence all of the stages of the buying cycle. So correct me if I'm wrong, but if, for people who may not be familiar, net promoter score is the number of people who would, for example, recommend you based on a certain interaction minus the percentage of people who would not recommend you. Mm-hmm. So how far above the, that line are you? And I think anybody can recognize from their own experience when you start to do research on new products, you do a little looking around and then you begin to, at least I do, I'm just going to describe my own experience, feel an attraction for a brand because of the way they do things or the amount of information they put out. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity there. And and uh, my other observation is in our industry, I think it's starting to turn around, but there's been a huge movement towards lead generation, or there has been a huge focus on lead generation over the last 10 years at least. Mm -hmm. And now people are starting to maybe think more about marketing in broader terms and that we can't just hammer people for email addresses continually, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think one of the learnings that, that we've had is that often you might get an email address of a researcher because they've been, they're interested in in downloading a piece of content. But unless you've done your job to nurture them prior to that and given them highly valuable content regularly, the type of, I guess, mindset that the researcher will be in at that point will be different. So have you really done enough to show them that your product or service can help them solve the problem that they're actually trying to tackle? Or is this just a simple form field that you've put in to try to gate one piece of content? 
So a download is not a lead, but it is an opportunity to educate someone and continue to build that interaction until maybe they decide to reach out or at some point you, through lead scoring or some other method, decide, okay, this person's a reasonable person to call. Absolutely. Give us some highlights about group dynamics because I think for certainly high dollar items, there are a yeah. lot of people involved. Absolutely. So this actually was the section of the data, which was quite interesting. And, and there were a lot of different ways that we sliced it to, to look at the insights. So we found this data quite compelling, specifically the lab group contributes to a purchase at which stage of the purchasing journey and what types of purchase. Um, so whether consumables or equipment. So to begin with pre-purchase research changes significantly based on item price. So with items over 10,000 US dollars, requiring sometimes up to a year of research and items under a thousand like consumables only requiring one to two months of research. The key insight here is that marketing timing and tactics should differ based upon the, the item price and that marketers might wanna recalibrate their expectations and objectives depending on the type of product that's being purchased. So for instance, lab equipment purchases that cost more requires marketers to deploy sufficient content marketing across various channels to satisfy the, the buyer's pre-purchase due diligence, while less expensive items require starting an average of about two months before purchase based upon our data. So what's also interesting was that lab equipment buying groups typically consist of at least three people. So with 70% of lab equipment purchases and 60% of consumables consisting of buying groups with three or more people. As such, successful life science marketing requires targeting multiple people within the buying group and not just that single decision maker. And to accomplish this, larger multi-target campaigns are quite important with messaging that's quite tailored to the different actors in the lab group. Furthermore, I think buying group size increases with item size. So that item costing $1,000 or more typically includes three to five people in a buying group. You mentioned targeting different people in the group, and you certainly mentioned different channels, but do you have, and I don't recall seeing this, but maybe I missed it, data on which channels based on, you know, do PIs and graduate students and lab managers, facilities managers get their marketing through different channels, like what's, and different types of content? Yeah, so we didn't actually slice that data in the report that we shared, but that would be an interesting one to, to look into. But specifically what we did look into in terms of the, the channels was, how the so which channel specifically was most influential in the purchase so for us actually it turned out that there were three that were most influential which was peer recommendations white papers and publications these were the ones that that carried the most influence yeah and that that's one of those ones that has always been consistent and i always think it's i totally believe it that's true if you ask the question differently, people will say, oh, I never read brochures or I never rely on a company website for information, but somebody had to. There's, mm -hmm. 
the, and maybe there's just a small group of early adopters or that companies reach out to those people because they know they're early adopters. They're probably influencers, thought leaders already. That gets the ball rolling. And then everybody else is riding on their coattails or their publications for more information. But it, it's always just funny to me. Everybody says, I don't go to the website. Somebody did. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> yeah. read your brochure before the first purchase. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's also worth enrolling like considering for marketers to enroll influencers to help you produce this scientific thought leadership that's another way of getting that in intrinsic peer recommendation happening if a trusted scientist within that particular field is is presenting a webinar that uses potentially your products and services um, to solve a unique problem um, that automatically is pushing that peer recommendation angle or interviewing those people on a podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Promote myself. Tag so, yeah. <laughs> um, so senior researchers, according to your data, start their research earlier. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking that's because they are involved in the things that take longer to buy. Yeah. I assume mm -hmm. it's not because they are diligently looking for the right consumable. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. But what else can we say on that? Yeah, that's quite interesting. Maybe at a high level. So senior researchers, of course, are involved in nearly um, every single buying decision. On a side note, I think it's what's worth noting is that the junior scientist is also involved and, and very likely to influence the more senior buying group members. And I think for all of the, the researchers out there, they would remember the time where they were PhD students and, and they influenced purchasing decision in lab. But nonetheless, I think the key decision maker is the senior scientist, the professor, the principal investigator. And I think really here, our hypothesis is that they're involved in higher purchase decisions. So as, as you rightly pointed out, Chris, which actually requires a higher degree of diligence. But another angle there that we're thinking about, which is related to that too, is that they're potentially also responsible for putting together grant submissions and outlining their budgets. And this requires an understanding of, hey, what piece of equipment am I actually going to be applying for a grant for? And this often happens several months in advance as well. Yeah, good so I, point there. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that's why it's really key to keep those campaigns properly targeting the right personas and making sure that message is adapted based upon the role, the seniority, or the, the focused area. Yeah, and that kind of leads right into my next question, and maybe you've already answered it, but you talk, you note that it's important to target those multiple audiences. Give us an example of what that might look like. Yeah, given that the buying group size in increases with an item price, the breadth of multi-target marketing campaigns should really correspond to the price of the item that's being marketed. So really, if you're looking at higher price items, you require to have these broader marketing campaigns targeting at least three personas within your buying group. So maybe you've got a PhD student that you're promoting very specific tips and tricks to help them with a specific technique in a lab or for a senior researcher, sorry, and for a senior researcher, you're showcasing the latest applications or the research your product is being used for. And I remember the more senior the colleague, the earlier the marketing programs should start. I guess campaigns should really follow 
each member of the buying group along their respective purchasing journeys. So starting with awareness with some form of educational content and then following with a more product related messaging that's focused on conversion. Nice. You probably noticed my dog just joined our conversation. Let's talk about channels and tactics to finish up. Which channels have the most influence? Which ones seem to have the least influence? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. And really, this is really the the interesting part because that's where you get from the strategy to the execution. And I think it, as it turns out, the best life science marketing mix is quite clear. There's the three channels that the most in, most influence the purchase are peer recommendations, white papers slash ebooks um, and publications. And these really carry the most influence. The obvious long-term ROI here is that they contribute to increasing the number of scientists that consider your brand. And I think this is really positioned as these pieces of content are best shared or this type of channel is, is best leveraged earlier on in the marketing funnel. Our data shows though that channels such as conferences and maybe larger outreach channels via social media can be less effective for influencing purchasing or consideration of your brand. And I guess this really points to leveraging high value content marketing to achieve this meaningful return on investment. Yeah, this is another question that I was thinking like, maybe they're not being completely honest about their answers or not that they're trying to deceive you, but as a scientist, you may not want to admit that social media is important. And certainly it, it's not where they're primarily going for information, but it's not a channel to be ignored. It's, I think if you have, if you've established good awareness for your brand and people are following it, then it's a way to get interesting information into the hands of your users. And with respect to trade shows and People who listen to this podcast know I'm not the biggest fan of trade shows, but if I'm a scientist and I go to a conference, I might wander the exhibition hall in my free time and might actually learn some things. But when I'm answering that question, I don't think of a conference that way. I went to hear other scientists. And so they say, oh, that's not an important thing, but they certainly do wander the exhibition halls and ask questions and not to, and I don't mean to dispute the data at all. I think the, the scale of influence from high to low there is probably pretty accurate, but yeah, absolutely. And even when we say high and low, let's take, for instance, the social media channel, there was still 50% of respondents that said that social media does play an important role in influencing it, the purchasing decision. Of course, if you compare it to the 80 plus percent that said that white papers and publications were important, there's quite a difference there. But I think it's where the answer lies is exactly how you put it, Chris, that it really depends on what the marketing objective is ultimately, and obviously the purchasing dynamics of your product. So if you are now trying to if the objective is you want to reach researchers that are already familiar with your brand, considering your product and service, maybe they're following you on a social channel, or maybe they are immediately ready to purchase, then maybe reaching them via a social channel, either paid marketing or simply by 
organic outreach is more effective because you can actually get that can actually end up being quite a a cost-effective solution. So I think it really depends on what your marketing objective is. I guess in the same light for conferences, I think that they're also quite important and maybe also very similar to the engagement that you get with a sales rep. And so one of the insights we found is that the importance of conferences as a specific channel goes up for higher price point purchases. And I wonder if it's this unique personal one-to-one interaction and that relationship that's potentially more important in influencing these purchasing decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And social media, it's, it's also a channel to deliver those white papers. And I'm not a social media expert. If you want to hear some, there's some episodes in the past on this podcast. But if you can create a channel that's engaging with interesting content most of the time and then get a following, then when you put out a useful white paper, people are going to pay attention. So yeah, yeah. I think one of the, one of the things though, that's interesting about that is also the, the context to which, so which social channel, for instance, you share that content and when is the right time for a scientist to maybe be consuming a white paper that is talking about application specific content is it when they're in the mindset of doing research or is it when they're in their downtime maybe following what their friends have posted or or relaxing this is also where i guess the context kind of matters uh, as well as the type of content yeah that's a great point what is the mindset of the person that when you want to hit them with that thing so you probably have to try a couple of things yeah well this, yeah Sorry, I was just going to say, Chris, I think at the risk of stating the obvious, I think the important message there is you are missing out on influencing a researcher's purchasing decision if you're spending the majority of your budget on those um, channels like conferences or social media. So considering that mix is, is probably important. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I'm hoping people are seeing that this year, that again, around conferences, people may discover now that they can take at least some of that budget and put it towards the content they always say we'll get to it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but they never do. Darren Alvarez, this has been very helpful. I appreciate you sharing the results of the survey. And Thanks. I'll put a link to that, at least to ResearchGate, in the show notes for this episode. <laughs> and a link to the parts of the, the survey that have already been published. Yeah, that's right. We've packaged it in three separate series, and they should all be available to download from our website. Yeah. All right. So well, maybe, Chris, as, as a kind of final parting word, I think what's really important for a life science marketer is to think like a scientist. I think scientists are used to making decisions based upon observations, sharing knowledge that proves that your brand solves a problem that they care about solving and then letting them make the decision to purchase is is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Solving the problems that they care about solving and helping them do that, that's really what it's all about. Yeah. All right. Thank you again and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I hope that's helpful for you to think about your marketing strategies, where and when to put your efforts. You can find links to all three parts of the survey we discussed in the show notes for this episode. As always, it would be awesome if you told two of your colleagues about this podcast. I think they'll appreciate it. I know I will. And if you've been wondering how to make better use of LinkedIn for marketing, 
Don't miss the next episode coming in two weeks. I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye.